Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to this movie night episode of The Other Half. I'm recording to you now from the Austrian Alps, where I'm currently on a family holiday. But before I set off, we recorded this special episode about the film Mrs. Brown. I say we because for the first time in the series, I have a special guest, my other half, Caitlin. So, without further ado, let's see what we thought. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. We are We're live with a movie night. Oh, hello everyone, and this is Caitlin Kane. Caitlin, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you, James. And uh, welcome to podcasting. I understand this is a, um, a return to form for you. One might say that, because I did, in fact, have a podcast when I was about 16, which must have been, like, 20... No, wrong. 2006? And, yeah, early days for podcasting, and I have to say, it didn't take off. And what was it called, if any of my listeners want to, you know, find it and find your pre-James days? I can't remember, even even if I did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> and so, yeah, I dragged you on to the podcast. I know mm. people have been curious who this other woman was. Yeah. It's you. Yes, it's me. <laughs> and people may notice you have a bit of an accent. Where is that accent from? Uh, I grew up in New Hampshire um, and then moved over to the UK a few years ago. Yes, people may remember that time when I couldn't record for ages because I'd left my laptop in Boston Logan Airport. That's because I was visiting her. Throwback. <laughs> Great. And yeah. so I have brought you onto the podcast to talk about Mrs. Brown. Now, listeners, we're going to be doing a brief non-spoiler part here to try and encourage you to watch the film if you've managed to find it. So how did you find it without giving too much away? Uh, so it's kind of an odd film and that like the plot it's very character driven I guess is what I would say the plot isn't necessarily I don't know I guess it's one of those it's always the way with historical films where you know that how they're going to end so there's not a lot of suspense but actually the whole thing made a lot more sense when I before we started recording this morning I read that it was going to be on it's a BBC production 
and it's supposed to be on television. And I feel like it made much more sense from that perspective. Yeah, I think it was a BBC Scotland slash Irish slash PBS. Yeah, they were going to show on Masterpiece in the States. Yeah, I agree. It was it was a slightly odd one. Mm. Most reviews that I've read of it um, say it's odd in that most historical films take the most sensationalist stories and mm. turn them into reality. Mm. So you have, I don't know, my personal bugbear Braveheart, mm. which takes every story of like English oppression in Scotland adds a few Nazi atrocities and then gives it that. Um, Whereas this one weirdly understates, like it has, there are a lot of rumours about this whole relationship that are just, just not carried. But yes, so did you enjoy it? Would you like to give it a, I'd like to give you, uh, get a pre-rating out of you. Okay. Out of 10. Out of 10. Oh gosh. I'd give it 7.5. Interesting, interesting. I would say seven, seven point five as well. Yeah. I feel uh, the performances are very, very good. Yeah, Judy Dench was amazing, and Betty Connolly, uh, yeah. fantastic as well. What I found interesting about Judy Dench is, in terms of like her film performances, cause obviously yeah. now we know her as this sort of great actress. Yeah. Uh, before, certainly to American audiences, she wasn't that well known, aside from being in uh, Bond. But she'd yeah. only been in, I think, just in Goldeneye by then. So she'd only been in Had one. She? Yeah, it was oh, in 97, gosh. so she'd been yeah. in one Bond film by when she did this. And I don't think she'd been in an awful lot of other things, whereas now she's been in quite a few mm. things. But she sort of now was known then as much more of a sort of a British stage actor. Mm. I think only recently have these people like Serena McKellen mm. or Patrick Stewart went over to do Star Trek, I guess, mm. a bit before that, but they weren't as well known in America. Okay, great. Well, that's a little bit of a preview. So if you haven't watched the film go watch it. I believe you can find it on iTunes. You might be able to rent it from your local library. If you can steal it from someone you know, you know, sneak into their house, steal it off their hard drive, whatever you need to do, go watch it. And then when we come back, we will be talking some spoilers. Okay, welcome back. So, I guess the first thing we need to talk about is... How Beatrice wasn't in the film? Yes, let's talk about (laughs) how Beatrice wasn't in the film. So, uh, yes, lots of listeners um, were saying, oh, I need to watch this film. You know, I've seen it before, but I had never really noticed Beatrice. I'm going to be looking out for her. And trust me, listeners, we were looking out for her. (laughs) And we thought we saw her. And I was thinking, well, you know, when this action is happening, it's mostly in the mid-1860s, so she would have been sort of 8, 9, 10, 11, mm. 12, sort of pre-teen. And we didn't see much in the way of children of that age. We saw children who were sort of younger than that, and then there were the daughters, and they yeah. seemed a bit older than that, but I thought I noticed Beatrice. And then we watched the credits, and it turns out she wasn't in the film at all. No, I got so, yeah, we got so excited whenever the daughters were there. and It was like, oh, Beatrice sighting. But no, they never even say her name. They don't. They mentioned we know we we noticed they mentioned Alice. They mentioned Helena. They mentioned Louise. They mentioned Leopold. Uh, they mentioned Bertie's obviously. Yeah, in he's it. big. Yeah. V- Vicky is actually conspicuous with her absence. Mm. But for a character who's supposed to be pretty much ever present around her, and she seems to have, according to at least a lot of the histories that I've read, be pretty much always there. She's not there. She's not even in the credits. <laughs> 
Which I guess, I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense. You know, the film is trying to very much portray these two characters. And if you suddenly had this young girl around, it might have been a bit too confusing. But I feel they could have had her in. Yeah, I think it wouldn't... I mean, I think the difficulty, partly from a film perspective, is that she had so many children. And you can't really... I mean, they're not the point of the film. And it's difficult to try to ask some, like, a viewer to keep track of them all. But no, I was, uh, it was a bit disappointing. Like, to me, I wasn't yeah. so disappointed that she wasn't, like, you know, a main character. I just wanted her to be there. Yeah. I mean, she didn't even need to have any lines. <laughs> like, most of the daughters didn't speak at all. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. Uh, it was very strange and rather embarrassing, mm-hmm. if I'm honest. Um, I haven't seen Victoria and Abdul. She, maybe she's more in that mm-hmm. film. But I understand it's broadly the same. Judy Dench plays Victoria in that as well. It's a similar sort of servant story. The Prince of Wales is the primary antagonist in that one as well. Speaking of which, what did you think of uh, of young Bertie? I mean, he, he didn't come across that well, if I'm honest. I can certainly see why he was so irritated at Brown. There's that one scene where the Queen was telling Bertie that he had to like stop smoking so that Brown could get a good night's sleep because he was keeping him up with all of his revelry. Mm. And he was very um, dismayed, I guess would be one word, that he was being told to curb his behaviour in order to, you know, for the servant. But I can see, I can definitely see as as a prince why he was angry at Mr. Brown. Um, but I, yeah, I don't think he came across all that well. <laughs> so I did some reading about this. Yeah. And from what I understand, the Victoria did ban smoking. She wasn't f- fond of mm. smoking. I mean, this wasn't a health thing. Obviously, back mm. then, that wasn't really understood. But what I read is actually it was banned because Victoria didn't like it. Mm. Uh, obviously, the smoking room is very much a male domain. She didn't get to be involved in it. And mm. I think she found it a particularly nasty habit. There were actually stories of, of the men around of Balmoral and Osborne having to mm. smoke up chimneys <laughs> to uh, so they could get away with it. It's kind of like yeah. kids like smoking out the window or something. So maybe he was just a convenient excuse. <laughs> yeah. I know the thing with Bertie yeah. is that certainly the story when he becomes King Edward VII mm. is of him as this great philandering but sort of uncle of Europe, kind of the nightmare of the Me Too movement, but mm. kind of a well-liked character in the sort of turn of the century. Uh, and this sort of larger-than-life character. And in this one, he comes across quite weaselly. And, I mean, he's obviously supposed to portray a contrast between mm. him and John Brown. You know, he's the born-into-privileged, posh English man versus the brash, mm. low-born Scottish servant. But there's definitely a lot of truth to the fact that Bertie hated Brown. You know, there's that scene at the beginning and end of the film where the bust is yeah. thrown out the window. A dramatic opening. Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know that if he ever threw one of those out the window, but when he became king, he did move uh, a portrait, I believe, or might have been also been a bust of John Brown to a less conspicuous area. <laughs> and there's also that inference uh, at the end, although I think it's done with Ponsonby when he takes John Brown's diaries. Mm. There's stories of him buying up or, or getting from servants bits of John Brown's stuff mm. and hiding them away. And I think uh, we'll come back to that in a little bit when we talk mm. a bit more about the sort of relationship between um, Victoria and, and Brown. Related to Bertie, I thought Alexandra was quite an interesting character, even though she didn't really, again, didn't get much screen time. But she was definitely a lot more present than the daughters. 
So for those of you who may yeah. not have been paying too much attention, that's Alexandra of uh, Denmark. So uh, Bertie's uh, wife, the Princess mm. of Wales. She looks so unhappy the whole film. <laughs> and she made such a contrast, yeah. I guess, because she's that sort of outsider. They really made a bit of that, that she had... She's ginger. She was ginger. Yeah. Uh, whereas, mm. like, Victoria's daughters, they didn't all have black hair, but they all had black hair in that yeah, film. they're identical, essentially. They all look yeah. exactly the same, whereas Alexandra, she has, well, she has that shawl that mm. uh, Victoria criticises her for, yeah. for being too vain. Mm. And, yeah, she has to leave her husband behind because the Queen makes her mm. stay in Balmoral. Yeah, she... I'm pleased they gave at least some other mm. female sort of aristocratic characters, like... Mm some screen time because you know otherwise i feel like i made you all watch a film that has no relevance (laughs) at all to the stuff we've been talking about on the podcast so we sort of start the film with victoria in the peak in peak grief it's sort of an interesting beginning because it starts you know at sort of starts at the end um with that chase scene through the woods and it sort of is very dramatic and very I know, it sort of sets you up thinking there's going to be a lot of action. And then, it, yeah, it, it goes into the, the grief section, mm. which is, I mean, most of the film, to be honest. But it leaves you sort of feeling on edge, and then it never really goes anywhere. Mm. No, there's, this, there's mm. the line, so the really sort of setting up line at the beginning of the film, which is in the letter that Ponsonby sends to, I guess, a colleague or something, where he says that they are all prisoners of the Queen's grief. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, because it's very... I mean, it's a very dramatic way, again, to, to say it. And it seems like something you wouldn't want to put in writing. <laughs> I can't imagine Victoria would have been very pleased had she had she come across that. Well, I think there are two principal problems mm. with doing a historical mm. accuracy analysis of this. And to be honest, most parts of Victoria's private life. Number one is that John Brown's own account was lost, Mm. stolen, destroyed. And an awful lot of the royal archives from this time have been suppressed or aren't accessible Mm. at the moment. Um, I'm reading a book right now about Princess Louise, and the author's talking about how the many different hoops that one has to jump through and gets blocked out to get her personal Mm. records. The other thing is that Beatrice, uh, sort of second half of her life after her mother's death, she went through and edited all of Victoria's journals. So the journals that we have surviving to us are the ones that Beatrice and some other members of Victoria's family thought weren't too scandalous. The approved version. They are the approved version. And what is amazing is how much criticism they thought was acceptable to the members <laughs> of her family in the approved version because Victoria mm. comes across quite catty a lot of the time. That's what I've always thought in the letters and things that you've quoted in the pod. You know, I've always thought like it's amazing how like forthright they are. And I those guess, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that they were the edited. Yeah, they're ones. the edited versions. It's amazing. Yeah. So mm. we don't know for example to what extent they were changed or to what extent things were just moved. Mm. One suspects a little of both. But at the same time, if you read them, it's not immediately obvious which bits are written by whom. Mm. So I think if they were edited, they probably weren't edited in in terms of changing a whole lot. Maybe the odd word was changed, Maybe, se- but mm. certainly large sections were taken out. Yeah. That's my caveat. We don't. There's a lot we don't know about this period. The Queen was 
very much shut off. Not quite as shut off as the film suggests. The film seems to suggest that she basically only goes between Osborne, Balmoral, Osborne, Balmoral. Yeah, and doesn't even really go out. Doesn't go out, doesn't see anyone. Mm. The film certainly makes the inference the public haven't seen her for four years, or Mm. however many years, which isn't true. Um, So she did go out occasionally, but it was pretty much only to open memorials for Albert. (laughs) They popped up everywhere. Sort of before we had World War I memorials in every village and every town and every city, you'd find things named after Albert cropping up all over the place, and she would go and open that. She also, and this is mentioned often in the film, she did still do her duty in terms of her correspondence, um, Victoria, one thing you can't level at her is calling her lazy. And with, with Albert, but also she on her own, went through an insane amount of letters, cabinet papers, ministerial papers, signing laws. She did all of that. So she wasn't derelicting her primary duty as a sovereign, depending, I guess, on what you define as her primary duty. She just wasn't making herself available. She wasn't making big public appearances. It was mentioned once in the film that she wasn't uh, going, she wasn't opening Parliament, and that's a big state occasion in the UK. Uh, it happens at the beginning of every year, or maybe a bit more, a bit less. The government comes across and say, these are the laws that we want to enact this year. They invite the Queen in, and there's a whole big ceremony, like she's not allowed in the House of Commons, because the last time a monarch went into the House of Commons... Charles I purged them all. So there's a whole thing where a man, I'm not making this up, called the Black Rod, slams on the door of the commons. They close the door on him ceremonially. <laughs> and then the and then the Black Rod comes in and summons them all to the House of Lords. And there's a whole big thing. So the Queen is allowed in the House of Lords. And she gives a thing called the Queen's Speech, which is like all the laws. My government thinks that we should do this this year, blah, blah, blah. Then that's all done. That's called the state opening of Parliament. And that's done, as I say, mostly every year, sometimes every year and a half or so. Victoria wasn't doing that. Off the top of my head, I don't know what was done instead. I don't know if it was read by Mm. someone else. I know uh, sometimes when the Queen isn't present, someone can deputise for her. But obviously Mm. the whole royal family was attending to her in Balmoral and in Osborne. But she wasn't doing things like that. She wasn't making herself available. And obviously in a time before... Or really even before like newspapers were massively read by by most people and certainly a time before television and the internet and things. You needed these public appearances to be seen. And if you weren't being seen, you weren't seen as doing that that's a huge part of your yeah. job because but for all of those comics come in that were in the in the film with the absent Britannia or whatever whatever it was captioned. Yes. Yeah. Actually, that's interesting. That brings us on to the next yeah. bit. So there's definitely the the threat in the mm. film is this spectre of republicanism. They talk about the Irish question, and there's definitely the threat. There's a, a huge threat from Irish republicans and Irish independence people, which is obviously a big deal. Well, it's been a big deal mm. for a very long time. It kind of still is, although less than it used to be. But it's also the threat from British republicans as mm. well. What did you think of how that was done? I thought it was done quite well, actually. I liked the little... I mean, we didn't get very many scenes in Parliament or in, like, London social life, but those sort of... that little gossipy scene at that party that Bertie goes to, and also the mentions in Parliament sort of worrying about public opinion. 
I think they did a good job of doing it subtly without, yeah, overstating it. I'm not entirely sure I agree with you. I think yeah. it was. I think they did make a bit. This is probably the one of the more sensationalist parts of the parts of the film. Uh, one of the bits where they kind of overplay their hand. There's a little bit of a disagreement in some of the historian stuff that I've read about how mm. much danger there was to the monarchy. So certainly, they yeah, the film definitely portrays it as in real danger, like、mm. a real low point. And what's interesting, of course, is this film came out or was made before Princess Diana died. But the 1990s were not a particularly good decade、mm. for the royal family, I guess, because even though it happened before the whole、uh, thing with Princess Diana dying and the Queen staying up in Balmoral and that kind of controversy, there was a lot of controversy around the royal family in the 90s. You have all the Queen's children getting divorced, obviously. With Prince Charles and Princess Diana's divorce being a huge story, there's Princess Diana's famous interview on Panorama. There was the Queen's Anna's Horribilis. I think it was in '92,、mm. where the castle burned down,、mm. many divorces and all those things. And so I think maybe they were playing into that a bit. But like I say, there's a bit of disagreement about the exact nature of the threat. One I read was like, no, completely overblown. There was no real threat. The actual monarchy. The, the threat was more to the monarchy's money. There was this idea that the British public were quite happy for the Queen to exist, but they were wondering why they were paying quite so much money for the royal family when the royal family wasn't really giving them anything. Obviously, the Queen had nine children, had also a large number of grandchildren, even at that point, and other nieces, nephews,、uh, other bits of the family that had to be paid for out of、um, the public purse. And there was question of, you know. Why are we paying for all of this? It's very expensive when we're not getting anything for it. However, there are there were some threats. So this is what happened in the eighteen sixties. In eighteen forty eight, famously, there was a lot of revolutions in Europe against against、uh, various monarchies.、It、didn't really happen in the UK for a couple of reasons. Part of it is because we were a more liberal country, so we'd passed laws to mitigate against it. But there were other threats. For example, the, something a group called the Chartists. I'm not going to get into it too much, but they were a group of people, mostly working class people, who wanted to be given the vote.、Mm. There was a lot of republicanism throwing in there, which one might expect. So the growings of the labour movement, the growings of what would of sort of socialism, that sort of thing. There was somewhat of a threat, but I think it is definitely massively overblown. I don't think the Queen was likely to face people with pitchforks. In the streets, or large crowds at the gates of Balmoral, pulling her out of bed and and stringing her up from the nearest lamppost. This wasn't French revolutionary stuff. You did have in the film, anyways, one of the MPs expressing some Republican sentiments. Is that something that was really happening? Because that seems quite serious. That I don't know,、mm. uh, and listeners may well know more than I do on this.、Mm. It does make the suggestion that the Liberal Party under William Gladstone they seem to be inferring that they are a Republican Party, Republican with a small R, obviously, and that isn't the case. So there were two main parties in the British Parliament at the time. There were the the Tories, and they were turning into the Conservatives. I don't know when the name change happened、uh, under Benjamin Disraeli, who plays a large part in the film. He was great. <laughs> And then there are the liberals led by William Gladstone, who were more. I mean, if you want to go for like, the left wing, right wing party, they're definitely more reformist. They had more sort of support from liberal thinkers, from 
I mean, working class people didn't really have the vote then. Uh, they had some vote. Mm-hmm. So they were the more reformist party. Mm-hmm. And so I think they played a little bit too much into them being Republican. I, there may well have been some Republicans mm-hmm. in the Liberals. I would be surprised if there weren't. So, and I'm not, mm-hmm. not sure, though, if any bills were proposed in the way that it was in the film. Mm-hmm. Again, I could be wrong. That's just my, my feeling. So I think we need to get to the other big thing in the film, which is the relationship between Victoria and John Brown. It's one of the great mysteries of Victoria's life is whether, quote unquote, anything happened between them. Uh, There's certainly a lot of inference that people thought that way. So there's the whole title calling her Mrs. Brown. There were rumours that they had gotten married. I might get back into that a little Mm. bit uh, later. There's the talk when they went and had that dinner at the Grants in, with the yeah. Grants in the cottage. She comes back and she's flushed and she's drunk. <laughs> but also, they talk about a little flushing in the face, yeah. and I was wondering if they were talking about like a postcoital glow going yeah. on. And there's the way they kind of look at each other, particularly in the Kaylee scene in the big in the in the mm. dancing scene, and also when he pulls her off her horse mm. in the in the woods as well. Yes. Much tension in that scene. They stand very close together, lingering glances. So yeah. what do you think? How What did you think of that in the film? I definitely... I mean, I don't, I don't think the film was overtly suggesting anything. It it was... You, you sort of had to look for the sexual tension, I would say. It was definitely a lot more of, like, the loyal servant to the Queen, I thought. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's very surprising to me that they went down such a conservative, uh, such a non-sensationalist route. And uh, I think that's one of the things that makes Birdie and the other characters look so, like, weaselly and whiny, is that, you know, they, they aren't implying that anything untoward was happening. And so you have all of these reactions from the other people sort of seem a little bit overblown yeah i'm you can definitely see from the film that they're doing things together that might would seem improper Mm. at the time and you can see you can sort of see why certainly the public might think this if they can't see the queen if Mm. they don't if she's not presenting any other narrative so this is me being a (laughs) being someone who works in uh, pr they're not presenting other kind of narrative. You'll you know, mm. things other. You'll make the facts fit different ways. There are definitely in sort of his, the historical record some suggestions that something might have been going on. There was a chaplain who apparently went to confession because he claimed that he actually married them. There's suggestion of some compromising letters that were suppressed after either Brown died mm. and or Victoria died, that were bought up, that were hushed up. There is also the fact that Victoria, we have this image of her as this very puritanical woman. And you can sort of see that from some of her letters and a lot of her persona, how that would come across. But she was actually a very, particularly in her youth, a very sexual woman. Mm. She delighted in having sex with her husband. I uh, remember that yes. in the part. <laughs> Uh, and so mm. it's not exactly unthinkable that something may have happened. Judy Dench is actually a lot older in the film than Victoria was. Uh, I think Judy Dench was in her late 50s, early 60s, um, when she was 
playing Victoria, whereas Victoria was actually in her early to mid forties in in the period where this is taking place. So it's not inconceivable that something may have happened. Apparently, Victoria's daughters used to refer to John Brown as Mama's lover. <laughs> but we don't know, A, if they were just joking. Mm. Or there's also the... Back then, lover didn't necessarily mean something sexual. Lover could just mean, a, like, a close companion, for mm. example. There could be maybe something romantic, but it doesn't necessarily mean something sexual. I'm always reticent to believe these sorts of things, because... If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. But at the same time, I was thinking about this. It would not be inconceivable if in history, uh, let's reverse the genders a little bit, you have a widowed king and a um, pretty understanding servant who uh, looks after him if they ended up having Mm. a relationship. We wouldn't be all that surprised. In fact, we would almost expect it. And so... I don't want to like completely rule out that something could have happened. I think it's unlikely, is what I'm saying. Which is why I'm so surprised the film didn't go down that, because mm. it's it would be far from beyond the realms of possibility. And we are quite far separated from the time. And I'm sure the royal family wouldn't be particularly wild mm. about the film being made, portraying the relationship mm. in this way. But, you know, it's not like anyone was alive in 1997 that... I would imagine that new John Brown or new Victorian Brown at this time, it's not like anyone can really come along and uh, dispute it too hard. And as well, I think if they had gone down that route, it would have made Brown's motivations a little bit more clear. Both of their motivations, really, because they're both very committed to each other in a way that you sort of have to think, what are they getting out of it? Whereas, you know, she... The Queen is completely upended the ranking of her household for Brown. Um, you know, that scene when he gets to sit at the head of the table and everyone's very shocked and clearly everybody hates him. <laughs> um, and and as well with Brown, he's so devoted to her in a way where you sort of have to question, is it ambition? Is it just? Is it really just loyalty? That is that great scene with him in the PM um, where, the, where he's asking, like, about his ambition, essentially. And, yeah, I think that was sort of left as an unanswered question. I think there's the comparison here that I'm sure many of you listeners are making on your head is with him, with John Brown and Abdul, um, comparing Mrs. Brown and Victoria and Abdul. Um, for those of you who don't know, there's a similar kind of character that emerges in the 1890s and, uh, well, through Victoria's death in uh, 1901, of this Indian servant who comes along uh, that Victoria um, brings in, promotes to sort of a high position, starts to become, starts to ruffle feathers. Um, he is very much more portrayed as a man uh, consumed with ambition, uh, that loved Victoria, but also uh, had his own interests at heart. John Brown is not is largely agreed, I think, in the source material not to have that in mind. People don't really seem to think that he had any particular ambition. I think partly because he was around for a very long time and never really went anywhere. He never he was never like promoted to some ridiculous high office. He was given honours, but he wasn't like knighted or anything. He was given medals. 
Uh, and he seems to be very much portrayed as this just incredibly loyal servant. The objections to him are more whether someone of his station, of his manners, and of his uh, way of comporting himself, I should say, his sort of more informal uh, way of talking to the Queen, a way of being about, actually should be there. There isn't really any suggestion that he did have that ambition. I think that's Partly what that scene was getting across, because Disraeli was trying to understand Brown. There's a lot of talking about climbing the greasy pole, and many of these other characters are motivated by ambition. Obviously, Bertie, he wants to be king, as Disraeli says at one point. Disraeli wants to stay in power. It's it's striking that 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 is not how Brown is portrayed. And I think the film is trying to perhaps make a contrast here, by saying, you know, these people, these posh people back in England, they're all motivated by greed and power, whereas Brown, who's this more simple, is this kind of Highland romanticism that you often get in mm. films, uh, is is only motivated by love, but not necessarily romantic love, platonic love. Almost a kind of paternal, or maybe fraternal love for the Queen, wanting to keep her safe, for for better or worse. But I do agree that some he sometimes does things that don't really make sense in in that reading of his character. I think there's definitely a sort of a vanity that mm. comes across with him, like sitting at the head of the table, uh, him rising to be this the head of the household. That didn't need to happen. And um, if you're trying to portray the character that way, but I think it maybe was an attempt to put some nuance into Brown. And I think the whole the whole point of him being there was that he was like shaking up the household and sort of. You know, he he came in so that things couldn't go on the way that they were before, which wasn't suiting Victoria in the long run, is sort of how it was portrayed. Okay, I feel we've been very serious so far. We may mm-hmm. come back to some other serious stuff, but let's talk about some other things that you might have enjoyed in the film. The One of the first things I read about uh, when I looking at the film and looking at things to say was people are very taken by the naked Gerard Butler and naked Billy Connolly scene. That was, I was just thinking about that scene, actually, because, I mean, that was a great scene, obviously, I proved. But the scene directly before that, when Victoria goes swimming with the princesses, and the contrast between those two images was hilarious. The poor daughters, they look so sad swimming <laughs> in their giant morning dresses, like, paddling around in the cold water. <laughs> Well, particularly yeah. as this was like the cold waters of, like, in the Isle of Wight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much warmer, I imagine, than whatever lock John Brown and Archie were swimming around naked in. Mm. I'd say I saw a little bit more of Billy Colony's nether regions than I was anticipating or necessarily <laughs> requesting. <laughs> I'm sure you were disappointed that you didn't see enough of Gerard Butler in that film. <laughs> and yes, Victoria... Just telling people off all the time. Yeah, she definitely came across as incredibly no-nonsense, which, yeah, she seemed like she was always on edge and about to uh, let loose at somebody. I think it's one of those things that often is you get with um, powerful people like Victoria, where Albert was someone who could talk truth to power, and then she kind of lost... Uh, that person who could like snap her out of it and sort of John Brown is supposed to be this person who can snap her out of it but Victoria seems to have gotten to a stage in her life where she just doesn't care Yes, <laughs> she could just say things mm. and just criticise people and 
be mean, but it's mm-hmm. okay because she's the goddamn queen. Exactly. <laughs> um, were there any other bits of the film that you found particularly um, entertaining? I, every every time um, John Brown's brother Archie was on the screen was hilarious. You could just because he. You know, he obviously he worked in the household as well, and you could just tell that he was so unimpressed by having. He just wanted to have like a quiet life, and here's his brother making so much trouble, and everyone's going to hate him. <laughs> when they all go to the pub later, they're going to like yell at Archie <laughs> about what his <laughs> stupid brother's doing. <laughs> I just feel very sorry for him. Him and Ponsonby is Ponsonby. Ponsonby, yes, the, yeah. the Queen's mm-hmm. um, sort of private secretary, the yeah. one who's in charge, basically. Uh, he's just trying to do his job. <laughs> The poor man. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I think he's. Um, I think the film treats him quite fairly because he's not seen necessarily. He's definitely a bit of a, a bit of an elitist, but I think trying to live around Victoria the way that Victoria says, he's just he's just carrying out her instructions and doing what he thinks is best. And then there's just John Brown just not following the rules. <laughs> yeah, Ponsonby's definitely a rules man. Yes. Uh, and obviously, we talked a bit about Disraeli, but what a great character is Benjamin mm. Disraeli in his Sherlock Holmes hat. Yes. <laughs> Another highlight. Mm. So one of the bits that I was wondering about in the end, so obviously, towards the end of the John Brown saves Victoria's life, or I guess it was a, it was a fake gun, but when at the celebration for Birdie, somebody tries, sort of rushes at her with, with a gun and he tackles him to the ground very heroically. And that was something I never really knew anything about, if it's true, people trying to assassinate Victoria. Okay, so did this happen? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, so Queen Victoria was one of the most attempted assassination against people that I've come across. Um, there were eight attempts on her life, mostly actually in her early reign, by seven people. Um, my favourite story of the assassination is the same guy. Um, so this is something, this is probably one of Prince Albert's stupider ideas. So mm. someone shot at Queen Victoria in the park, uh, but he got away. I think it was in Green Park. So Albert's great plan was, let's try and flush him out by driving in the park. Certainly <laughs> using the Queen as bait. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. Let's stop the Queen from being assassinated by offering her up for assassination. <laughs> that it, would not happen today. <laughs> amazingly, it worked, and he was he was captured that time. Like I said, there were well, there were eight attempts on life by seven people. Um, none of them were successful. I, the Queen wasn't even hit. Um, this was a time when there were a lot of assassination attempts on prominent people. I mean, obviously, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated mm-hmm. around the 1860s. Various stars of Russia at this time other were assassinated or had attempts. Um, Victoria did not, there was no attempt on her life during Bertie's service of Thanksgiving. However, this did happen in 1872. So she was going on a drive in Hyde Park and a man called Arthur O'Connor, who was a dissident Irish Republican. So there's a lot of argument about this time Partly about Irish independence, but more about sort of Irish mm. home rule. There's a big thing in the film about the disestablishment of the Irish church, which I'd have thought they'd bring up a bit more of, or they just mm. assumed that you know the background to that. Yeah, if you all- weren't sitting next to me, I would have had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> but it's all, yeah, it's, yeah. All, it's all the, mm. what leads up to uh, the Irish civil war and Irish independence. He was had sympathies that way. And he brandished a gun at her 
um, John Brown tackled him. He was arrested and uh, I think he was sentenced to death, but Queen Victoria commuted that to lifetime imprisonment. And the gun was a fake, or at least the gun didn't work. And so the guy, Arthur O'Connor, claimed that he never really meant to attack, to assassinate <laughs> her. He was just trying to make a point. So it did happen, but not in the way suggested. That's a bit of narrative license, really, to make it work for the plot, then. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm usually with historical accuracy, that sort of thing, like, who cares? Mm. Like, it did kind of happen. They needed to move it to a new location. Like, it would be really ridiculous for the film to try and, like, get mm. that in properly. Yeah, one of the other things that happened that I wanted to ask you about was um, there's a letter from all the children, um, signed by Helena and everyone, demanding that John Brown gets dismissed from the palace. Is that, did that really happen? There's certainly a letter, a very famous letter, and I mentioned it on the podcast, that demanded that the Queen come out of mourning. That was really the main issue. People didn't like Brown, and I think there was a suggestion that Brown was... There was a suggestion that Brown was the reason why she was still in mourning, and that's definitely in the film played up, uh, how he doesn't... He won't let the Queen come out of mourning. He keeps her in this sort of state of fear... Not deliberately for his own ends, but he sort of sees the danger. I don't know, actually, off the top of my head about whether they were specifically about John Brown, but there is a very famous letter that Beatrice was not privy to, or at least did not sign, but that was led by Vicky. Uh, But obviously Helena, I think, is suggested, I believe, is like the coordinator in the household. Also, Um, they they don't mention Vicky. No, exactly. So they may have just decided. But they they didn't mention Helena, apart from this one scene. But I guess she's there. There was a letter asking her to come out of mourning. It did not go down particularly well. That was a great scene as well when she was like, De Ponsonby, please tell my children who are also in the room that I absolutely won't do anything that they say. <laughs> I won't address it to them because I'm too angry. Well, the, and the Queen yeah. did do that stuff yeah. like that, um, as mm. you all know from the podcast. Mm. Uh, when she wasn't talking to Beatrice after mm. she got engaged, mm. she would pass her notes. <laughs> rather than talk to her. For eight months, she mm. did not speak to her. So she she is capable, Victoria, of being incredibly petty. Uh, in scenes like that, I think she really just didn't come across all that well. <laughs> so I think John Brown is a, is a controversial character um, in many ways, um, but I think the film plays up his role possibly a little too much. And obviously the way the film sort of ends is with John Brown essentially heroically giving up himself he tells the queen that she must go out of mourning the queen sort of sees this as a betrayal mm-hmm. uh and then he you see his sort of his downfall he's no longer like so prominent he's no only head of security he starts drinking more uh more and more which is which is true john brown drank a lot until you know he's finally dying uh and gone a little bit incredibly paranoid uh, and the queen didn't really know which is a little overblown. The sort of fall from grace didn't really happen. Mm. He, he remained like a big part of her life until he died, uh, rather than sort of fading away and becoming this joke character. You know, you know, used to be able to, he could command the scene in the table and then at the end he's laughed away. Mm. And that's definitely, again, overblown. But I think the point is that it plays up his role beyond probably what is the historical truth at the beginning and then plays it down a little too far. Mm. The truth is somewhere more in the middle. Well, thank you for uh, coming onto the podcast. Yeah, this was fun. 
And I guess we'll have to try and do this again. So listeners, if you did enjoy this, please do show your appreciation for Caitlin. Uh, I often say that I'm a very vain person. I don't think Caitlin is immune from that. (laughs) And do suggest other films that you think we'd like to do. We may do this again in the future. Okay, say bye, Caitlin. Bye. Bye, guys. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.